0: I want us to turn our focus onto the Word of God now. And I want to just. Um launch us into a mini-series this morning. As we march through the book of Acts, we've kind of broken it down into some mini-series. These banners on the side reflect our overarching banner for the entire book of Acts. We're trying to capture the main theme of the book of Acts, but as we work through, we're kind of breaking it down into some bite-sized chunks, and this morning we're launching, we're moving from where, where we were, which is we had a series entitled Get Ready, The Promise Is Here. And in the first couple chapters of Acts, that's essentially what God was establishing, that he was fulfilling the promises that he had made all throughout the Old Testament, that the the time of fulfillment was here in Jesus Christ. And in the first couple of chapters, we saw that, that, that we are living in what is coined the last days of God's redemptive plan in human history. This is the final phase of God's plan for humanity right now on this earth. And the last days really capture the time between the first coming of Jesus, which we are going to celebrate at Christmas, and his second coming, which is yet to come when he returns to rule and reign The promises were being unleashed upon that early church This new era in history was beginning to unfold in such a dramatic and rapid way as the Holy Spirit, that promised Holy Spirit, was poured out upon the church. Peter stood up and preached and he shared with the people about how God had fulfilled these promises he had made through the Old Testament and miraculously, supernaturally, 3,000 people were saved, repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ on that one Pentecost Sunday. Now we shift gears and what we begin to see is a transition from the promise fulfilled into the power that's provided for the church. And so we're moving from that get ready, the promise is here, into the get set, the power is here. And unfolding in our text this morning is really a display of that gospel-infused power. It's infused into the ministry of the church. It's important to understand that the church is deemed an institution of hope. In these latter days, in these final days where sin will run rampant, where darkness is still prevalent, the hope for the world is seen and found in the institution of the church. And the church is the institution of hope because we hold forth the person of hope, Jesus Christ. Amen? It's been said Like this, that the church is a hospital an inch away from hell, not a resort an inch away from heaven. In other words, the church is not intended by God to be a place of spiritual relaxation and spiritual apathy and spiritual complacency and spiritual laziness. The church of Jesus Christ is designed by God to be a place of spiritual power, of spiritual progress, a place where there is spiritual healing taking place, a place where spiritual equipping is taking place, and a place where people are sent out into the world. That is to be the norm. Sadly, however, if you look at the state, the current state of evangelicalism, most profoundly and importantly for us in the Western world, that is captured by a commercialism, that is captured by an individualism, what we have seen throughout the history is that the church is, relatively speaking, and this is a blanket statement, rendered ineffective, They're struggling, seeking to reach the world. They have become like the world and now are indistinguishable from the world. The normal expectation of the church being a place and an institution of hope and the people of God being those who are proclaimers of hope sadly is found little and little these days. In the early church, as we look at the book of Acts, serves to really remind us of the purpose of the church and the power that is given to the church. It serves to instruct us on both Christian living and Christian ministry. And our hearts, here's, here's, here's what's important to get this morning, our hearts should long to experience powerful and effective Christian ministry. As individual Christians, it should be our longing to have powerful gospel ministry taking place through us. Our church should long to be a place where the gospel goes forth in power. In the early church, as they were launched by the power of the Holy Spirit and the leadership of the Apostles who were following the ultimate leadership of Jesus Christ, they begin to see powerful gospel ministry taking place. And I want us to read from chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Let's read it together. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Here is for us a taste of the powerful gospel ministry that was being launched in this early church. And I believe though the manifestation of this power doesn't look exactly like this, this very same power and the expectation of God's power going forth through his people and in his church is the same for us today. The question is then, how do we experience powerful gospel ministry in our lives and in our church? That is what I want to answer for us this morning And I want to show you first that powerful gospel ministry happens when I seek the Lord daily. You'll notice verse 1 tells us that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. There's a little bit of carryover here from Acts chapter 2. We looked at it a few weeks back, 42 through 47, that really summed up for us that common life and an uncommon community. The things that were becoming normal practices in the life of the church, the things that they were devoted to and continually practicing, things like devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. They were constantly gathering with one another and the text tells us in verse 46 that they were day by day, constantly attending the temple, meeting in each other's homes. God, as a result, was doing mighty works and saving people through their faithfulness to him, but it all begins right here. The early church was effective and experienced powerful gospel ministry because of their consuming desire to seek the Lord daily. Peter and John were close friends. The scriptures tell us that Peter and John actually grew up in the same place and they eventually owned a fishing business together along with John's brother James. They were part of the inner circle of Jesus. They were always together. In the early chapters of Acts, what we see is that Peter and John are those the ones who are prominently displayed in their ministry. It's maybe a helpful note to see that it seems that so much ministry in the early church took place not as simple individuals, but in pairs, in teams of people for support and for encouragement. And here we see a Peter and John primary in gospel ministry. The verb used here in verse 1 for what Peter and John are doing, going up to the temple, is significant. It, It implies that the use of the verb implies this ongoing process. Again, this is part of their normal daily routine. And you say, well, why were they going to the temple? It's simple. They were going to the temple because the temple was the place where the people of God went to seek the face of God. This was ingrained in them, yes, because of their Jewish roots, but you could argue even more so now as those who had a Christian faith. All those things in their Old Testament Jewish system now had newfound purpose and meaning. They now understood them in ways that they previously hadn't. Things were beginning to make sense. They found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and so their worship was all the more greater. Their pursuit of the Lord was all the more meaningful. It's the ninth hour, the text tells us, and the Jewish faith had hours of prayer. The ninth hour was one of those hours of prayer, and it was likely the most popular hour of prayer. It's about three o'clock in the afternoon where they would do an afternoon sacrifice, and people would gather in that sense to worship the Lord. This was the busiest prayer time where thousands of people, throngs of people would rush into the temple courts. You might notice this, that it seems like their ordinary daily routines are the place that presented extraordinary ministry opportunities. And verse 2, it continues to kind of set the scene for us. It tells us that a man who was lame from birth, don't miss the importance of that. This was a man who was born this way. It's setting up the significance and the amazing power of the miracle that's going to be displayed. This isn't a man who had some temporary sickness or illness or disease. This is a man who is known to have been crippled from birth. He was born this way. Other texts indicate that it's likely he was probably about 40 years old. He had lived his entire existence as a cripple. He had paralysis in his legs and feet. And just like it was the normal daily routine for the apostles to go into the temple to pursue the Lord, what we find out is that it is this man's normal daily routine to be placed outside of the temple at this gate to beg for alms, to beg for charity. Significant, because as Jews flooded into the temple, most of them came superficially seeking to impress the Lord with their piety. The Jewish system at this time was utterly corrupt, and with a few small exceptions, most of them were all about the external religious behavior. And almsgiving was considered a virtuous, even meritorious act for the Jews, something that earned them credit with God. This man is positioned right outside this gate for a reason. But you need to know this about his condition. This condition of being a a paralytic or a cripple would put him outside of the bounds of, of being socially acceptable, religiously clean. He was seen as an outcast amongst the people. Do you remember in John chapter 9 when Jesus was with his disciples, they came across a a man who was born blind and the disciples turned to Jesus and they asked him this question that reveals to us what the culture believed about those who were born in this kind of condition. They said, Jesus, tell us, who sinned that this man would be born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? You see, so there was a stigma attached to this man. He was crippled, he was lame. Likely, they believed because he had sinned if he wasn't born this way, or if he was born this way. Maybe it was his parents' sin. So you see, God has cursed this man. He deserves this in some way. That's the way the culture felt about him. So why, why are you explaining it? in such detail, here's here's why, because you need to understand that this man in this time lived in an utterly hopeless existence. He was born to be a beggar. And verse 3 tells us this, that seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Here's what I find so interesting about this. It's guaranteed that Peter and John had walked past this man many times before. This was a part of their normal routine. This was a part of his normal routine. He sat there probably in this very spot surrounded by other beggars before. How many times had Peter and John walked into the temple to worship God and failed to notice this man? Or how many times had they walked past this man and seen him and failed to do anything about it? Luke wants us to know that this beggar picked Peter and John out from the crowd. He, he hones in on them. And if you know anything about, about beggars, and I've seen beggars in, you know, all over the world in different countries, they seem to have this innate ability to hone in on people that they really think could give them something. Experienced beggars have a knack for spotting potential givers, and I, I wonder if, they, if this potential beggar, this beggar excuse me, honed in on Peter and John because of how different they were from everybody else who was streaming into the temple. The truth is they were different. They were radically different. They had just had this incredible encounter with the living God. The Spirit of God had been unleashed upon them, had filled them, and had empowered them. They were different men. Maybe they look different because as the throngs of people rushed in to superficially worship the Lord and externally uh, demonstrate some kind of commitment to the Lord, they looked different because the, 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 fr- the smile on their face, the joy that they were exuding was reflecting all around them the newfound hope that they had in Jesus Christ. Maybe he saw a difference seeing that these were some of the only genuine, genuine worshipers walking into the temple that day. I wonder if we just consider this scene and look to draw out some principles if I can highlight a few things for you. First being this, do we see our daily pursuit of the Lord, our daily worship of the Lord as essential for our Christian existence and effectiveness? The early church saw this commitment to pursue the Lord daily gathering together in the temple and in homes and centering their hearts and their lives around the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ as they celebrated the Lord's table. They longed to sit under the teachings every day. They longed to pray every day. You see, these these spiritual disciplines, as we coined them, were not something that were simply added onto their life. It was something that began to consume their life. It was their life. They saw that there was nothing apart from these things. How often do we simply tag on the Bible, tag on our pursuit of the Lord, our seeking of God as something that maybe if we have time to do, maybe, maybe if we feel like it, I wonder if our hearts need to be more like the psalmist in Psalm 63 where David said, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You are everything to me. If I don't have you, I have nothing. If I don't have my sustenance from you, I will be starving hungry. If I do not drink from the fountain of your grace, I will be empty and depleted and inadequate. I need you. Just make a note of this, I believe that because they were faithfully seeking the Lord daily, God gave them opportunity for powerful gospel ministry. God blesses those who seek him, and one of the ways in which he blesses us is by giving us more and more gospel ministry, more and more opportunity. Note this as well, when we are seeking the Lord faithfully, every opportunity matters. It's amazing to me that Peter, he hones in on this man who is a social outcast. Even to kind of get close enough, maybe even to touch this man, could be deemed as being unclean and, and, and make you in, in unacceptable to go into temple worship. And here's Peter, he's just, think about the contrast here, he's just preached a message to thousands and thousands of people with massive success. And all of a sudden he turns and finds one poor beggar and he goes out of his way to look into his eyes, to pay attention to him, to demonstrate love and compassion and compare to one individual. Note this as well, when we are seeking the Lord faithfully, we see our surroundings differently. So often when we're not seeking the Lord, we're so selfishly motivated, we're so tunnel-visioned in our approach, and, in, and our view is so often skewed, but when we begin to seek the Lord, our eyesight is broadened, our peripheral vision becomes clearer, we begin to see what God wants us to see. The people, I find this so fascinating, I believe that the people that God wants us to minister to most often are the ones that we encounter in our regular daily routines. Our regular daily interactions, the people we we pass by and we don't usually give a second thought about, but the people we see often, maybe it's our coworkers, maybe it's our, our neighbors, maybe it's people we go to school with, maybe it's parents, you know, we sit on the sidelines with, those are the people who God has placed in our life, and I believe if we had eyes to see, if we were seeking Him faithfully, we would see that God is placing before us a wonderful opportunity I think that you will rarely see the opportunities if you're not seeking God faithfully. If you're not daily longing for Him, and if you are seeking Him daily, then you should expect these opportunities regularly. And secondly, notice this, we need to seize the opportunities faithfully. It all begins with seeking the Lord daily. This is a regular part of our Christian existence, our Christian lives but it's one thing to see the opportunities in front of you, isn't it? It's a whole nother thing to seize the opportunities. And here in verses 4 through 7 comes this incredible divine encounter that would change, radically change this man's life I want you to notice this as we look it over. Notice the intentionality here in Peter and John. And the text tells us that Peter directed his gaze at him in verse 4, as did John. They intentionally looked in this man's direction. There is forethought here going on. And they spoke directly to him. Again, look at us. Pay attention to us. And the text tells us the man, thinking that he's going to receive something from them, did just that. Everybody else faded into the background. He fixed his eyes upon these two apostles. God had providentially orchestrated a ministry opportunity that I believe these apostles didn't necessarily anticipate But I'll tell you this, when it arose and was presented to them, they did not squander the opportunity. They seized it with great passion and intentionality. I'll just tell you personally that I have had countless situations where I believe God has literally dropped on my lap an opportunity for gospel ministry. To my shame, there have been many times where God has done that and I have known God was doing that where I did not seize the opportunity, I did not respond the way God wanted me to and I'm sure that you're probably in that same boat. In the moment, for whatever reason, maybe it was fear about what they might think or fear of rejection or, or, or you know, maybe it was just simply my own comfort. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm quite comfortable right now, I, I've had a long day and I don't really feel like getting into this right now, Right? my shame. God's like, here you go. He serves it up on a platter, and I've squandered opportunities time and time again, sadly, and by God's grace, listen, by God's grace, there have been many opportunities that God has presented to me where where I haven't squandered them, at least not to my knowledge yet, but in God's grace where I have sought to honor him, I'm sure, and I pray that you have done that as well. I think that as followers of Jesus Christ, we simply need to pay more attention to the opportunities that exist around us. So often I'll hear, you know, in prayer meetings, right heart here, and nothing wrong with praying this, Lord, give me opportunities, right? I prayed that, Lord, I just, I want opportunities. And, 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 and I, I had a conversation with a guy this past Uh, week in Turks and Caicos when I was there. I preached the message I had preached a couple weeks ago on Acts 2.42 and you know these common things and if you're here I, I read a quote at the end of the message from John Stott and I'll just kind of summarize but John Stott said that we as a church need to recover the expectation that God is going to regularly save people. And the man came up to me the next day, and he said, "Can I can I just ask you about something you said? You said that you know that you think, and that you agreed with this quote that we should have this expectation that God is going to regularly save people. This should be normal. And right now, it's you know we don't really see that as normal." He's like, "Do you really think that's a reality, though? Like, do you think it's it's right to believe that?" He's like, "And here's what he was saying: I just really don't see this as happening." (laughs) And I, I I said, "Well, I think you're right. It's not happening. The better question is why isn't it happening?" Is, is our expectation that God is just gonna just start saving people like this? I, I, I said to him, and, and, I, and I just wanna tell you this, that I was convicted over this myself. I, I said to him, I said, you know I, I think sometimes we just expect God to save people when we don't wanna do anything to help out. And I, I said, can I just ask you a question? And I'm asking my own heart now. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? This man, 60 years old, he looked at me, 60 years old, and he said, I honestly could not tell you the last time shared the gospel with somebody and I said well I think that's the problem you see we can't recover the expectation if God is, that God is going to save people if we don't recover listen the expectation that God wants to use us to save people If if we don't commit as a people who have the only hope in the world to say, I'm not going to hide it, I'm not going to conceal it, I'm I'm not going to live my life as if this doesn't matter, I'm going to declare this, I'm going to go forth into the nations, and I'm going to be bold about my faith, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. Jesus isn't saving people who don't hear about him, right? God's designed means of salvation, and here's where we need to be as a church. If we want God to be saving people, church, here's the reality. You and I, I lump myself into this. We need to be committed to making gospel ministry, sharing Jesus Christ, a daily pursuit. I was so convicted. I, I read somewhere that John Wesley, uh, um, he, used, he, he had committed to the Lord that not a day would go by where he wouldn't share the gospel. There were times he wrote in his journal where he was going to bed. It's a long day of ministry, you know, 16 hours of ministry, lots of travel. It's midnight, and he all of a sudden remembers that he hasn't shared the gospel. He gets out of bed. He puts his clothes on. He goes back out onto the streets to find one soul that he can share Jesus Christ with. How convicting is that? Let me ask you, when was the last time you shared Jesus Christ with somebody? I mean, I mean, Seriously. We can talk about theology, we can debate, you know, good things, we can enjoy time together, but listen, church, if we are failing to do what God has called us to do, we are failing. God has called us to this great privilege of powerful gospel ministry. We say we want gospel ministry and gospel opportunities, but are we really willing to participate in gospel ministry and gospel opportunities? Part of this is simply recognizing the Christian calling, this is why we are here as Christians. You say, well, I'm not sure what my role is. Well, listen, listen. not every one of us can nail down a specific calling. Not every one of us has been called like the apostles to have this very clear-cut vocation. But in our minds, in the church, listen, we, we have created this bifurcation where we have said that certain vocations are good and right for ministry and certain vocations are not. There's this kind of secular-sacred split that's occurred. We need to recover, listen, this reality that everywhere we are, wherever God has placed you, is an opportunity that he has given you to be a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many Christians today who wrongly believe that to truly serve God, to truly do ministry, they need to become a pastor or a missionary to some faraway, unreached people group We need to embrace a missionary mindset. God has saved us, and He has sends, listen, He has saved us to sanctify us and send us to the world, every one of us. This is amazing what happens here. You'll notice in verse 6 and 7, just the power of God on complete display. It's undeniable. Look at this. Verse 6 says this. As this man fixes his attention, expecting to receive something, he, he receives something he never imagined was even possible. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. I mean, this is intended to have a shock effect on us. Here's why, because things like this don't happen, right? When was the last time you saw something like this? Never? This this kind of miracle does not happen like this anymore, and it was rare and unique in the time, listen, even of Jesus' day and the apostles. Miracles and, and... Expressly, listen, the gift of miracles, an individual gifted uniquely with the power to perform miracles, was something that was sporadic throughout the history of humanity. In the Old Testament, it is so rare. Individuals, maybe a couple prophets, Moses, you think of the the plagues, right? Um, You think of Elijah and Elisha. Very few others ever performed a single miracle, and those men only performed a few. It wasn't until Jesus Christ came on the scene that miracles began to come forth in massive ways, and Jesus is healing and casting out demons and raising people from the dead, and this was, again, remember, crowds flocked to him because of the uniqueness of what they were experiencing. We need to take a minute just to explain what's happening and remember the significance of this gift of miracles, especially, I think this is really important, and we're not going to get into so much detail, I don't want to divert us too much from the topic at hand, but it's important, especially in light of modern-day faith healers that we see all over you know, television, the, the array, vast, endless array of televangelists who are claiming to have healing powers of God and are making, by the way, boatloads of money doing it. These kind of faith healers, just so you know, are very recent. They're a recent phenomena, Only in the 1900s and specifically beginning in the 1950s, Televangelists have propagated this kind of thinking, and I would just suggest to you that we're going to see that they do not square with what the Bible actually teaches. Not the message, and certainly not even the miracles. Remember what God is doing in this unique time frame. There has been 400 years since God has spoken through a prophet. The Jews believed they knew the scriptures, and yet what God was doing in this new era was He was revealing new truth. New truth is being dispensed through God's spokesmen, the apostles and the prophets. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, tells us this that God was laying the foundation upon the, the uh, apostles and the prophets. God had given these men a unique ability. And you'll just notice with me in Acts 2.43 what it says there, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through who? The apostles. The apostle Paul in Acts chapter 12 verse 12 said as he was defending his apostleship, uh, I, I came to you, here's my accreditation, here's my validation as an apostle, I came to you with the signs of an apostle, with many wondrous Signs. In other words, this was unique, not everybody could do these things, and God had given this sign to validate not only the messengers, but the content of the message they were bringing. Now here's where this is heading. What we see in the New Testament is that this gift of miracles begins to slowly fade away. By the end of the New Testament, Paul is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, end of Paul's ministry, this apostle Paul, who by the way could heal people and do these miracles as well. He's telling Timothy, don't go get healing, drink a little wine, not just water for your stomach. There's virtually no mention from miracles at the, as you look at the progression of the writing of the New Testament near the end. Very few, but there are plenty of warnings of false apostles and false teachers and false prophets who will come doing mighty and miraculous things through the power of Satan. You see, they were laying the foundation and they were coming with new truth that had not been heard before, not been understood. And so God was making sure that they knew that this truth was approved by God. It was actually from God himself. And once that truth was codified, it was written down, it was locked and sealed, the foundation, in other words, has been laid. Let me ask you, anybody in here build a house? How many times do you lay a foundation when you build a house? Hopefully just once or else you've got real problems, right? Listen, the word of God is the foundation that was laid by the apostles and the prophets. It was laid, this is the faith, once and for all delivered to the saints. There is no more coming, there is no more, this is it, until Jesus returns. And now the church is being built up with this foundation, Jesus Christ, being the cornerstone. He is at the center of all of this revelation. The church is built up and strengthened upon the foundation that was laid by the apostles and the prophets. Now, let me just qualify this. Some of you are getting a little nervous. Does God still do miracles? Let me just say this, okay? Nobody can walk out of here saying they didn't hear this. Yes. Nod your head if you heard me. Yes. Okay, I don't want anybody walking in or thinking, well, Ian doesn't believe in the supernatural. Ian doesn't believe in miracles. It's on record. We're recording this, okay? I believe it. I believe God does miracles. I do not believe the gift of miracles that we see here is operative today. But God does many miracles. Some of you have experienced the miraculous power of God. God heals people. He does. How does he do it? He does it through his normal means today, through the prayer of God's people. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about that, but that's gonna come later as we march through Acts. What you need to see is this. If you were even to take, you say, well, what about what we see on TV and all these stadiums filled with people at like Benny Hinn and, you know, and, and it was falling down all over the place. That is just so not Biblical. It is so outside the bounds of Scripture. And if you look at what they're doing, listen, if you look at not only the miracles they're doing, the kind of miracles, the quality of the miracles, if you look at the methods they're using, and if you look at the motivations that drive them, none of those things actually line up with the miracles we see in the Word of God. They do not match. There are massive discrepancies. If we just are quickly to survey this miracle, let me just point out a few things. We're getting back now into the, the point of this text, but I hope that's in some ways helpful. Notice this. This miracle is undeniable, okay? It's verifiable, unlike the, the, the massive, you know, hoaxers and fakes out there that you can't actually verify the miracle because it's all internal and nobody can ever see it and test it. It's instantaneous. It's not progressive, right? It happens on the spot. No time passes. It's instant, this man is up on his feet. It's incredible. It is supernatural. This is not the result of some medicine or some technique. It is complete. There's no flaws in this miracle, It happens perfectly, it accomplishes perfect healing, so much so, listen, that this man's joints that he's never been able to use, he's never been able to put weight upon his feet, his muscles have atrophied because he's never used them in his legs, in an instant he stands upon his feet, he doesn't even need to learn to walk, he just gets on his feet and he starts jumping up and down, right, like, I can use these things? And as we'll see in more detail next week, you'll notice what he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This is all done by the power and authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now notice this. This is, this is let's get back into here. This is, this is so sweet what Peter says. It's so, so encouraging. I love this. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. There's a general spiritual axiom here that we need to embrace, and it's this, you can only give away what you actually truly have. You can only give away what you actually truly have. If you don't have the scriptures, if you don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life, you cannot really give it away. You cannot offer to people what you do not possess for yourself, and this is a call first and foremost to examine maybe your own heart this morning. Notice this, secondly, we must offer people not simply what they think they need, but what they truly need. Now, to be sure, this man was in need of money. This was his livelihood. This was the only way he could survive. But what you need to see is this, that Peter offers this man what is so much more important than his physical livelihood. He offers to this man spiritual livelihood. He offers to this man spiritual life. And what we will see is this, that while this is a literal, physical miracle of this man's bodily healing, it points to something much greater. It points to the deeper need of every human being which is a spiritual healing spiritual revival and spiritual life i I fear that in so much of the modern church today and in so much of our gospel presentations it's so geared towards felt needs and I think, I think, listen, I think the Bible and the gospel meets felt needs, but, but so many people and so many churches preach a gospel that's all about felt. Hey, look, if you just, if you believe in Jesus, your life will get so much better. He'll fix your marriage. He'll fix your families. You see, it's all about the, the felt needs. It's all about the peripheral things in your life. In other words, Jesus is a means to an end, and the end is you having a better life. Now, it's, it's really more about me than it is about Jesus, as if Jesus is some uh, kind of addition to your life. But what we see in the early church is so instructive. Jesus Christ wasn't an addition to their life. He became their entire life. Everything was consumed with Jesus, the pursuit of him. And I just really believe it's really a burden on my heart that we need to, we need to offer To people, the hope of the gospel, not not the prosperity gospel, not the gospel of an easy life now. That's not the truth. Jesus said, all those who want to pursue me and come after me, you need to be able to deny yourself. Pick up your cross. The picture is death. Paul told Timothy that all those who pursue godliness in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is not a feel-good message. Now listen, what it leads to is something far greater than what people think they need. That's the point. What we truly have to offer people, listen, listen, loved ones, what we have to offer people is true healing. True healing. N- not, I- you and me, we're not going to walk up to anybody and just heal them, especially when you think, you know, of the kind of miracles of, of a lame-born person, a person born lame or blind or w- with a, a shriveled hand. Or We're not going to do that, but here's what we can do. We can come up and offer them healing, not just for their body, but for their soul. This is so important, and we'll see this more next week as we see Peter unfolding the true purpose of this miracle. But just note this, we offer the spiritual lame the only thing that can bring them to their feet and cause them to leap. We offer them lasting, powerful hope in Jesus Christ. Notice this finally, that gospel, a powerful gospel ministry requires that we savor the grace joyfully. the kind of climax to this miracle is really in the response of or to the miracle and you have to just make a note of this that this is setting the stage for Peter to be able to get up and declare to the people the hope of Jesus Christ but there is a a sweetness to the way this man responds to this miracle and and the way the people kind of respond in wonder and awe and verses 8 through 11 really give us this incredible picture it says this and leaping up he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping I love this and praising God you better believe he was praising God This man was walking and leaping for the first time in his life, and he cannot help. You've got to imagine the scene. There are thousands of people rushing into the temple, all about the external religious exterior, and look at me. I'm walking into church. I got my suit and tie all done up, and I look the part, and I'm playing the part, and here's this man in the middle of the crowd leaping and jumping and probably hooting and hollering. He couldn't help it. He couldn't help it. Luke uses an interesting word for jumping in the the Greek text of the, uh, the Old Testament, the Septuagint, in Isaiah chapter 35 verse 6, it depicts the word for a deer that is just leaping off the ground. What he's received is so far beyond what he had ever expected and hoped for and even imagined was possible and the response seems fitting for somebody who's never walked, doesn't it? I mean, if you've never walked in your life, you better believe you'd respond like this. I would hope, I would be upset if he didn't respond like this. Let me ask you this. How do you respond to the gracious healing of God in your life? How have you responded to the grace of the gospel that God has seen fit to lavish upon you? This healing is in some ways, though it's literal, it is also a parable of the greater spiritual healing. But I want you to see this. This is so important. This response is a parable of what our response to grace should be. Three ways in which we need to savor the grace of God this morning. Let me give them to you. First is this savor the grace that God would save you. Now, I say the word savor because I think so often, you know, we get so accustomed to the reality that we're saved. Right? Could, could you, if somebody physically rescued you if you, if you, if you were drowning in the middle of the ocean and somebody just threw themselves out there and was your only lifeline and they saved you, they swam you to the shore, they hauled you up onto the boat and your life was spared because of them. Would you ever forget it every time you saw them? Would you not want to express gratitude and thankfulness every time you reflected upon it? Wouldn't you just want to savor the reality that because of what that person has done, I am alive today? This is the picture of how we ought to respond from our hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the grace of God. Listen, we were hopeless, we were lost, we were drowning, we were dead, we were slaves, we were bound to sin, and by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have been raised to life, our shackles have been broken, we've been set free, our lame feet have been given new life to leap, our mouths have been given new life to shout praises to our God. amen this this is the desired response of God towards the gospel of Jesus Christ not cold not arms crossed hands in pocket when you savor the gospel your heart needs to leap out of your chest it's okay if your hands leap into the air every once in a while too okay Just, just throwing that out there You need to see the significance of this. It tells us this, that he's walking and leaping and praising God. But before that, notice this. It says this, he entered the temple. This man had never been allowed to step foot in the temple before. Because of his his disease, because of his illness, because of his condition, he was excluded from the place where the presence of God was, was, was believed to be at the time, but was really symbolic at that time. He was excluded from enjoying true relationship and fellowship with God, at least in the truest sense. But now what we see is this because of this healing, he marches right into the place that symbolizes the presence of God. This is a wonderful picture of the spiritual healing that takes place for you and me. We are sick and diseased, we are not because of sin. And we are not allowed in the presence of God because of that sin. We are alienated. Some of you in this place, though you don't even know it, though you you've maybe just you're hearing this for the first time, you, the parable for you is this. You are like this this sick man, this crippled man. You are spiritually crippled because of your sin and the stigma of your sin and the reality of your sin keeps you alienated from God. You're at a distance from God. The grace of the gospel says that God saw you in that condition and just like Peter and John walked up and they they set their gaze, their compassionate gaze upon the, the crippled man and spoke to him, so God set his compassionate gaze upon you when you were in your place of hopelessness and despair. So God, in his grace, like Peter, reached out his hand and pulled you to your feet. Notice this, this man didn't earn this, this man didn't deserve it, he didn't even expect it, he did nothing but receive the grace of God, and his response ought to be our response, and some of you today, listen, you can have that response today, you can spiritually leap for joy and sing to God with passionate praise, because today is the day of your salvation. God loved you so much that he came for you that he died in your place. The perfect God, he, he hung on a cross and he paid the full weight of your sin. We sang that this morning. Jesus was punished for your sin so that you wouldn't have to be. Jesus gave you his righteousness because you didn't have any. You say, how do I get that? You believe. You believe that you are not worthy enough, that you're not good enough, there's nothing you can do. All you can do is embrace the grace that's extended freely to you in Jesus Christ trust in him trust in his perfect finished work savor the grace that saved you secondly savor the grace that God would change you I love the excitement in the people you notice the excitement is primarily due to the fact that they know this man they know who he was they know who he was but they now see who he is Verse 9 says, all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat by the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is, again, such a sweet picture for us. The miracle was utterly undeniable, and God's desire was to to physically change this man, to make him a, a new man, so to speak, so it is spiritually with us. God wants to take us and make us recognizably different from the person we were before. He wants to take that old, dead person, and he wants to breathe new life into you and change you by the power of his grace. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is God's desire to take you and I from where we were to who he wants us to be. The man's life would never be the same. It is forever changed. I wonder if you look at your life, do people recognize there's a difference in you? This man will no longer live with the stigma of his sickness and by the grace of God, we will no longer live with the stigma of our sickness, sin. Amen? Amen? It no longer defines us, and God in his grace delights in changing us, progressively making us more like his son. Do you savor the grace that God is changing you? Lastly, do you savor the grace that God would use you? You're saved to be sanctified, to be sent. Anything else is falling woefully short of what God has planned for you. God wanted to use this healed man. He will become a platform that Peter will stand upon to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life would be useful to God, but believe this, his life, his new life would be useful to God too. I mean, the text doesn't tell us what this man made of his life, but I can tell you, if you have been healed like this man, if you would have your life so radically changed, you will be telling people. You will be telling people about the power of God in your life. This man reminds us that God loves to heal and to restore and to use broken individuals, and he makes them useful for powerful gospel ministry. Verse 11, I love it. He's just, this is awesome. He says, while he clung to Peter and John, you, you get the picture here? This guy's like, You guys just saved my life. You, you, you don't understand what this means for me. He just, He's holding on to them. You know, he's like, They're probably like dragging them. Get off of me, man. Like, He's like, I'm not, wherever you go, I want to be. Whatever you say, I want to hear. I wonder when the last time was you thanked God for the people he's used in your life. What a difference this made in this man's life. Maybe you're wondering here today, could God really use me in all my brokenness and all my my sinfulness and all my past life and who I was or maybe who I am now? Can I ever be somebody useful to God? The answer to you is an unequivocal yes. Consider these apostles for just a moment. If you were to list their positive attributes and their negative attributes, I guarantee you the list of negative would far exceed the positive. And yet... And yet, these two men will have a powerful ministry that will turn the world upside down. What made the difference? The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. These same ministry dynamics are available to you and available to me today. If we would only commit ourselves to seek the Lord daily, to seize the opportunities faithfully, and to savor his grace joyfully, I believe with all my heart that God has great things in store for you, in store for this church so that many might know the hope of Jesus Christ.